Watcher Ice Coffee listeners. We're sticking with the Northern Hemisphere developments this episode, and the last I told you, Richard Byrd just played a pivotal role in stymieing an attempt to establish an air force for the United States. With Mitchell's upstart ideas, which would eventually be vindicated, where Byrd's legacy is, well, we'll get to that, nipped in the bud, the US Army Air Corps set about setting records and firsting firsts and impressing the hell out of Congress with all the checks that that entails. Head of the Navy Air Bureau, William Moffat, cast about for similarly impressive feats that would redress the extremely competitive balance between the Navy and the Army. Moffat's fancy was tickled when someone suggested the Navy's flagship airship, the Shenandoah, depart Nome, Alaska, for Spitsbergen, traversing the entire Arctic for the first time, taking in the North Pole if possible, and claiming any land discovered along the way. Initial enthusiasm for the idea was damped down by an order from President Coolidge that the Navy should cool its jets until Congress could assess the proposal thoroughly, and then snuffed out entirely when the Shenandoah received lightning damage during a flight, because airships are crap and can't fly around adverse weather. The idea of an aerial traverse of the Arctic stuck with Bird, though, and he began fishing for support for an attempt of his own in the 1925 Northern Summer. The Navy, stewing on political interference in their grand plan, seemed keen to back the bird, and he received financial support from industrialists Edsel Ford and John D. Rockefeller, who chipped in $30,000 between them. Bird requested three seaplanes from the Navy, but his superiors found themselves in a bind. They'd already received a request for ships for a National Geographic Society expedition seeking to work to the north of Greenland. Donald McMillan and his 2IC, Naval Reserve Lieutenant and Industrialist, Eugene MacDonald, sought and received President Coolidge's endorsement for their expedition, and the Navy, unwilling to snub the President and the National Geographic Society, and therefore unable to back both horses, suggested Byrd take the requested three aircraft, learning amphibians, and his Navy pilots, among them Petty Officer Floyd Bennett, aboard Macmillan's ships and operate under the larger expedition's aegis. As you already know, split leadership doesn't work well on ships and in high latitudes, and while Byrd carefully pulled strings to ensure the orders cut for him identified him as holding sole charge of airborne operations, this didn't prevent Macmillan treating Byrd's projects as tiresome encumbrances on his greater work. With MacDonald as his second-in-command, more interested in demonstrating the utility of the radio sets that his Chicago manufacturing interests developed, Byrd's aviation projects got no support, even when Byrd announced an intention to search for Amundsen and Ellsworth's missing dorniers. Luckily, Amundsen and Ellsworth saved themselves, nulling Byrd's responsibility to seek to aid fellow aviators in trouble, a tradition of duty that carried into aviation from maritime law. But even with that crimp in his ambitions eased, Byrd wasn't ever likely to get much done under Macmillan and Macdonald's leadership, resentful as they were of his presence. The high note of the expedition for Byrd was working with Floyd Bennett, a capable and calm pilot with whom he got along well. On reaching the far northern settlement of Itar, the local population couldn't spare Macmillan the coal he'd planned on bunkering, limiting the expedition's scope of operations. Bird's learning aircraft, ungainly looking but sturdy units, capable of operating from land or water, 
couldn't find more than 500 nautical miles between fuelings. With Macmillan unwilling to use what coal remained getting Bird closer to the pole, Bird opted to lay fuel depots by which to leapfrog his way north. Bird and Bennett managed to depot 100 gallons of fuel on Ellesmere Island, but subsequent attempts to reach that site failed when the waterways froze over. The learnings were amphibious, like a duck, but not trifibious, like Gapa, and the lateness of the season layered on top of Macmillan and Macdonald's indifference to the aviation facet of their expedition and the local coal shortage nixed Bird's plans. He made a final flight with Bennett over northern Greenland and reflected on what the voyage taught him. Aircraft could operate in the Arctic, but the window for safe operations was short, and he needed longer-range airframes that could achieve his goals on a single fueling to null the need to make depot flights. Such depot flights at least trebled the distance and the numbers of takeoffs and landings required for a given goal, thereby reducing the chance an overall scheme might come off. He also needed to find a base of operations with a good coal supply to ensure the attendant ships could roam freely in seeking the best spots from which to put ashore, or afloat, his aircraft. Kings Bay, Spitsbergen, featuring, as it did, a coal mine, based on the discoveries of William Spears Bruce aboard Prince Albert of Monaco's oceanography ship, might serve the last need neatly, and rapid advances in aviation technology might see him right on the range issue. Technical matters aside, what he really needed to succeed was autonomy of operation, a lesson many other high-latitudes leaders also learnt the hard and disappointing way. Isaiah Bowman of the American Geographic Society encouraged Bird to work with and learn from Hubert Wilkins, recognising the Australian's experience as far outstripping that of his US counterpart. Bird initially accepted the role of Wilkins' deputy, but reneged two weeks later when the US Navy sent word they were willing to support an independent project with Bird at its head. He would get his chance to operate autonomously after all, and we'll catch up with him after we track with Wilkins for a bit. Wilkins used the funding available to him to purchase two Fokker airframes, one an F7A single-engine model, which he named Alaskan, and one a tri-motor F7B, he dubbed Detroiter. Anthony Fokker, pragmatic Dutch arms manufacturer and salesman, who until recently provided the German forces with their premier fighter aircraft, escaped detention in the wake of the war. His guards from among the German revolutionary forces that ousted the existing power brokers getting it in the neck, literally, for not recognising the Dutch war profiteer as he made his escape and made his way back to the Netherlands. He had the machinery, materials and aircraft parts remaining in his factory and fabrication plants brought to him in six freight trains, each comprising around 60 wagons of materials made contraband by the Versailles Treaty. I'm thinking bribes. I'm not saying bribes, but I'm thinking it really, really loudly. This gave his new factory the kickstart it needed to succeed anew, and he began producing passenger planes that were essentially a scaled-up version of the wing from his final German fighter, the D-8, set atop a fuselage to carry six people instead of one German officer intent on doing glorious battle in the sky with Herr Tommy Atkins. Fokker saw the opportunity to stick it to his American competitors 
and offered to cut his prices for Wilkins if the Detroiters pulled their funding based on Wilkins selecting a foreign manufacturer. The Detroit Aviation Society, Edsel Ford in particular, indeed felt distinctly unhappy about the manufacturer Wilkins selected. Besides Detroit being the adopted home of the Stinson Aircraft Company, Edsel Ford recently purchased the Stout Metal Aeroplane Company and was hoping to make Ford the premier name in aviation manufacturing, placing a great deal of hope and a far greater deal of money into the development of William Stout's 3AT design a tri-motor affair, as was the style at the time. It didn't perform, the aircraft barely able to maintain height on its underpowered engines and liberally unstable about all axes of motion. The test pilot's three-word handling report, after barely making it back to Earth safely following a single circuit of the airfield, was, forget the plane. Ford promoted Stout away from the engineering side of the project, an aviation industry technical phrase for sacking someone from the workshop floor, so nothing they can do will ever directly put pilots and passengers' lives in danger again, and Stout's replacement, Harold Hicks, requested all the technical drawings for the 3AT be brought to the hangar housing the prototype. The hangar promptly burnt down, taking every trace of the garbage aircraft and its origins, other than William Stout himself, with it. The clean slate this fortuitously, and I made air quotes there, left in place, allowed Hicks to design the Ford Trimotor, which went on to earn some success, but not enough to keep Ford in the aviation game. The company chucking its investment as a bad lot until the Second World War made licensed airframe manufacturing a figurative license to print money for the company. The shorter version of that digression is that in 1925, the US aviation industry, and Ford in particular, didn't make anything to match the Fokker product for range and reliability. The Detroit Aviation Society stood by their man Wilkins, ensuring his Fokkers were prominently marked up with Detroit Arctic Expedition. They also required Wilkins take United States Army Air Service Major Tom Lanfear as chief pilot and second in command of the expedition overall, ensuring Wilkins' nationality wouldn't cause any confusion regarding claims over any new territory sighted during the proposed flights. Anthony Fokker recognised that the high-wing, tri-motor design he rushed into production to get his new factory up and running was quickly imitated by other manufacturers, Stout among them, and made it a requirement of sale that all Fokker airframes be unmistakably marked as Fokkers, the name appearing on both sides of the fuselage, both sides of the wings, and on the wing-leading edges, so it's easy to misinterpret pictures of Wilkins' aircraft as representing part of the Fokker Arctic Expedition. Given Lanfear's inexperience in flying at high latitudes, Wilhelmer Stephenson recommended Wilkins use Dakota-born Alaskan bush pilot Ben Eilson to fly the selected route, which Wilkins would navigate. Eilson learnt to fly in the US Army Air Service, but the war ended before he deployed to Europe. As was the case for many aviators of his day, he worked up experience and cash flying mail and occasional passengers around in war surplus Curtis Jenny biplanes. While rugged and generally a forgiving airframe for its time, flying open cockpit in all weathers in second-hand machines worked a strong selective pressure on pilots and those that survived their time in the ad hoc air transport industry of the era generally did so because they were competent and careful, 
such as Charles Lindbergh. Eilson added to the challenges of flying jennies in the post-war period by operating in the exciting topography and weather of Alaska, making them a good fit for the skills needed in Wilkins' project, which now included landing on the sea ice to determine the depth of water below it via a primitive form of sonar, should they not spot land en route. Wilkins began making preparations to get his aircraft, fuel and crew to Fairbanks, the last stop on the railroad through Alaska. From there, a dog team and two donated Fordson tractors would cart fuel through to Point Barrow and there begin construction on the remote outpost's new runway. Point Barrow, named after John Barrow, Secretary of the Royal Navy who threw so much money and humanity at the Northwest Passage, didn't have much of anything the expedition needed. The Fokker airframes were assembled in Fairbanks' only hangar and on March the 11th, all the town comprising around 200 Inuit and a few Europeans, turned out for a naming ceremony staged by Palmer Hutchinson, correspondent for the North American News Agency. After two ladies broke bottles of fuel over the noses of the aircraft, Lanfear started the engines of the trimotor Detroiter and taxied along the runway preparatory to making a test flight. A snowbank blocked its progress and the ground crew and sundry onlookers headed to the aircraft's assistance stamping the snow flat out in front of the Fokker. As Landfear opened the throttles, Hutchinson, unfamiliar with airframe operations and enthusiastically trying to help, walked into the portside propeller, dying instantly as the blades, turning at 2000 RPM, tore him apart. A near-miss incident in similar circumstances the following day, leaving the almost corpse with a propeller nick in the neck of their parka, saw Wilkins eager to leave the trimotor alone until the weather improved. A week after Hutchinson's death, Wilkins and Eilson made the first flight in the Alaskan, the single-engine Fokker F-7A. All went well until the engine stalled on short finals and the aircraft thumped onto the runway, smashing its undercarriage and engine mounts and bending its propeller as the machine slid along on its belly and into a fence. The following day, Wilkins and Lanfear took the Detroiter for a test flight. Lanfear found one of the outboard engines underperforming and the asymmetric thrust caused the Fokker to crab through the air. With the whole airframe shaking violently, Lanfear made an approach but stalled while still 50 feet up. The trimotor hit the ground hard in the same spot the Alaskan crashed. The undercarriage smashed, the propellers wrecked, and the Fokker standing on its nose when it came to rest. Wilkins received pressure from his Detroit-based backers to sack the pilots, which he ignored. After three weeks' repairs, the Alaskan was readied for a flight to Barrow. No word from the overland party reached Fairbanks, so Wilkins didn't have a meteorological report and couldn't be sure the fuel he sent behind the tractors would be available when he arrived. On the 26th of March, with Eilson at the yoke, the Alaskan climbed out of Fairbanks, stretching itself to achieve the 5,000 feet the most up-to-date charts indicated they needed to cross the Endicott Mountains. Finding the mountain peaks much higher than their Fokker, Eilson gave it the herbs and climbed, but the airframe topped out at 9,000 feet and the mountain peaks still towered above them. Unable to climb over the Endicotts, Wilkins took them north 
to skirt the coast. Low cloud prevented his identifying where the coast lay, so he dead reckoned a path that would put them well clear of land. They flew on that heading for 120 nautical miles, just to see what they could see. As the weather cleared, Wilkins and Eilson saw further in that direction than any previous human, and they sighted no new land. Turning south again, Eilson made a safe landing on a runway marked out in the snow by Charlie Brower, a Point Barrow trader whom Wilkins knew from his time in the north under Stephenson, and who followed the odd but precise instructions he received via telegram from Wilkins, outlining how he should arrange matters for the arrival of an aircraft in February of 1926, if no one arrived by dog team to do the work beforehand. Wilkins sent out a radio message about their success, unloaded the radio set and what fuel they wouldn't need for a direct flight back to Fairbanks, and on the 6th of April flew the far lighter Fokker to 11,000 feet and over the mountain peaks. The Alaskan received a new load of fuel and flew back to Barrow, arriving at almost the same time as the overdue overland party. Their tractors and their loads abandoned. The party arriving by dog sledges were worn out, hungry and snowblind. Their six weeks struggle, which yielded no gain, were put into stark relief by the six hour flights by which the fuel stockpile that could see the expedition extend over the Arctic to Spitsbergen gradually built up. Aviation was cutting corners no one previously recognised as corners. The third flight did the trick. They were set for their magnum opus. So long as no one set fire to the... Oh, someone set fire to the Fokker. Operating an air-cooled engine in very low temperatures requires some care. The oil has to be drained from the crankcase after a flight to ensure it doesn't become too viscous to circulate. And the engine itself has to be kept from cold soaking as differential contraction of metal components could cause damage in any attempt to get things moving when precision engineered parts stop fitting so precisely. A small blubber fire on the ground and a canvas awning over the engine to keep the heat where it was needed usually sufficed. On this occasion, the blubber stove set fire to the aircraft and while vigorous shouting brought help and the fire came under control quickly, the heat it caused started the wooden propeller delaminating. Wilkins got on the radio to Lanfear. The Detroiter was repaired, but the Army pilot refused to fly it over the Endicott range claiming the maximum airspeed the Fokker could achieve after the best repairs possible at Fairbanks precluded climbing above the mountains. Eilson made a test flight in the Alaskan, but deemed the newly developed and vigorous propeller vibration likely to cause far worse damage if they attempted a flight back to Fairbanks. Wilkins, angry that Lanfear refused to fulfil his expedition role by flying a new propeller to Barrow by the same route he and Eilson used to get around the mountains on three occasions already, got back on the radio to give the Army aviator an Antipodean serve, but the genset used to run the machinery burnt out. With no other option available, Eilson bound the damaged propeller together with copper wire, balanced it as best he could, and the pair took off for Fairbanks once more. I think it was during this particular flight that Wilkins experienced an impact that broke his arm, but he carried on with his program the urge to succeed with the time and resources to hand outweighing the pain. 
with a replacement propeller in place, Eilson and Wilkins started their takeoff roll in the Alaskan for what they hoped would prove the final flight from Fairbanks before they made their epic, epoch-marking flight to Spitsbergen. The Alaskan wouldn't leave the ground. Eilson, figuring it must be overloaded, removed some of the cargo and made another attempt. As the aircraft reached flying speed, the starboard wing parted company with the rest of the airframe, putting something of a kibosh on the flight. The bulk of the airframe came to another nose-down, tail-up halt, with Wilkins buried in leaking fuel cans, unable to dig himself clear with his one good arm, and in imminent danger of immolation. Luckily, the fuel didn't ignite, and the ground crew helped extricate their bruised leader. An examination of the right wing revealed deeply ingrained racism, misogyny, and unacknowledged privilege. An examination of the starboard wing of the aircraft revealed damage incurred in the heavy landing after the first test flight, which became progressively worse under the strain of subsequent flights, ending in complete failure at the one point that that could happen without killing everyone aboard the Alaskan. Wilkins ordered the Detroiter loaded with enough extra fuel and oil that the Arctic crossing might be made in the larger, thirstier aircraft, and ordered Lanfear to get it airborne. On May 8th, unable to disobey a direct order delivered in person from the civilian that his military orders told him to heed, Lanfear was also unable to lie about the Detroiter's performance over the radio, and the trimotor Fokker carried its load over the Endicott Mountains easily. Fog prevented Wilkins making a start on the transpolar flight the next morning, as there's no point looking for land you can't see, even if it's there. Radio calls to Spitsbergen requesting Met reports were received and responded to, and while the Detroit Arctic expedition awaited their weather window, the news came in that Bird flew to the pole and back, and that the Norge was on its way. I haven't told you about the Norge yet, but we'll get to it. Regardless, Wilkins experienced a thrill as the airship passed over Point Barrow, feeling his predictions about aviation opening up the Arctic vindicated. The weather never broke, and in early June, the Detroiter flew back to Fairbanks for hangaring. Wilkins hopeful the Detroit Aviation Society would back him for another shot in the next flying season. Now, where is it to boy? The New York Times announced its support for Amundsen and Ellsworth in March 1926, throwing Bird into a frenzy of preparations to catch up. His industrialist backers agreed to fund, to the tune of 100,000 US dollars, a party of 50 men to head to Spitsbergen with two aircraft to shoot for the pole. Further money came in from the New York Times and the National Geographic Society in the form of contracts for exclusive articles on the endeavour. Weather might determine the earliest that the Amundsen-Ellsworth team might set out, but if Bird wasn't on the ground and ready to go at the same time as them, the earliest date was a moot point. In three months, he brought together his resources, which is impressive stuff, but I don't doubt that the Bird expedition would have been better prepared both mechanically and in terms of understanding what they were getting themselves into if Bird had more time in the run-up. None of his subsequent projects featured such a rush to get moving. And stop. Amundsen time. Risa Larison and Amundsen headed to Rome to negotiate the airship purchase with Nobile and Mussolini. 
Nobile felt concerned that the N1 airship, built with the best materials he could source at the time, made a bad fit for the demands of the expedition. He had a better airship in development and could cater to Amundsen and Ellsworth's specific needs using better materials if the expedition could wait until he completed construction in 1927. Alert to the growing interest his own Dornier-based efforts helped foster in the Arctic, Amundsen didn't see that they could wait and pressed for the N1. Well, in that case, the Italians had an offer too good to refuse. Nobile's airship would be made available at 75,000 US dollars and Italy would buy it back for 46,000 US dollars if it came through the voyage in good order. I find some dissent in the various accounts and it may be that Mussolini offered the use of the airship free if, and only if, Nobile and an Italian crew could take part in the expedition and operate under the Italian flag. Such accounts recount Amundsen refusing the offer because of the flag bit, but negotiating the price and potential refund I quoted, using Nobile as a pilot and Italians as crew, but under the Norwegian flag. If Amundsen questioned why these people seemed so eager to co-opt his skill and experience to advertise their technology and regime on a world stage, he didn't let it prevent him signing an agreement with Mussolini. It likely didn't help anyone other than Il Douche that the president of the Norwegian Aero Club, Dr. Rolf Thomassen, helping fund and coordinate ground support for the expedition, was an ardent admirer of fascism generally, and Mussolini in particular. Amundsen would lead the expedition, Nobile would pilot the airship, and Risa Larsen, who underwent airship training in Britain, would act as second pilot. Lincoln Ellsworth wanted to be credited as co-leader though, and it seemed all the leader slots were already taken. Spot the warning signs? Anything familiar in this arrangement that led to disaster in previous expeditions? Yep, you're bang on the money. Have ten ice coffee points for paying attention. Too many people thinking they're in charge is always bad at high latitudes. Ellsworth got co-leader billing and was noted in the Norwegian press as the expedition navigator. Leif Dietrichsen took umbrage at this as he was already slated as navigator and knew from his experience aboard N24 that Ellsworth didn't know enough about navigation to be trusted with a sextant. Dietrichsen chucked his spot in the expedition over this matter. Risa Larsen began making preparations for positioning the airship to Kings Bay and housing it there safely, and Nobile began making Amundsen specified modifications to the airship, renamed Norge, as part of the contract of sale. Nobile's 106 metre long N-class design was a semi-rigid airship, lighter and smaller than the fully rigid Zeppelins, but heavier and more capable than the blimp-type airships which wore their unframed gas bags as their outer skin. Named after a colonel, Colonel Blimp to be precise, blimps are limp, though that might not work out as a helpful mnemonic since airships are lame by definition and you might get your injured leg metaphors where your rhyme should be. The Norge used hydrogen for lift and three 260 horsepower engines turning large wooden propellers for thrust. Water ballast accounted for changes in trim and lift during the course of a flight. The Norwegian Aero Club organised depots of fuel and hydrogen at staging points along the path north to Kings Bay and the erection of mooring masts the airship could tie down to, and these masts still stand at Vadso and Nye Alisund. 
Nabile wanted the majority of the crew to come from the ranks of his experienced airship teams, but the Norwegian Aero Club felt the majority should come from Norway. An arrangement in which six Italian crew of a total complement of 16 would make the flight attempted to put the politics to bed, but posed practical problems in that the Italians and the Norwegians couldn't communicate effectively and felt mutually exclusive loyalties among the split leadership. While Amundsen wanted to afford the entire crew of the Maud the opportunity to fly with him on his new adventure, he ended up bumping the Maud's Russian radio operator, Gennady Olomkin, to add another Norwegian to the roster to ensure his countrymen outnumbered the Italians. Because yeah, what you really want in a highly flammable, not very steerable, slow, noisy flying machine is social division and language barriers. Oscar Omdahl and Oscar Visting joined the venture, but now Ellsworth kicked up that US interests weren't well represented, and given that he was paying for the airship, he felt it only fair that US media receive first pass at anything newsworthy arising from the flight, making deals with American media interests, and issuing a ban on anyone saying or writing anything about their activities until he satisfied his contractual obligations. Nabile negotiated co-authorship of a proposed book arising from the voyage with Dr. Rolf Thomason of the Norwegian Aero Club, but Amundsen got mad as a shithouse rat over the deal, seeing as so much of his potential income stemmed from the books and lectures likely to arise after the expedition. Rapid-fire telegrams between the parties worked an agreement that while Nobile wouldn't contribute to the book, his name would be incorporated into the expedition title the Amundsen Ellsworth Nobile Transpolar Flight. Nobile wasn't done upsetting his Norwegian counterpart and set a strict luggage limit for everyone to ensure that the airship could carry enough ballast to account for all contingencies. Flying through wildly varying air temperatures required regular venting of hydrogen as the gas expanded and threatened to burst the oxgut linings of the gas cells within the airframe, and this required ballast be lost to counter the resulting loss of lift. Amundsen and his team were allowed the clothes they wore and little more. Nabile, on the other hand, ensured the Italians all took their formal fascist uniforms aboard as luggage and brought his annoying little dog, Tatina, with him. The transit to Kings Bay experienced many delays as the masts and hangar arrangements invariably took longer than expected to erect, but the air and ground crews finally assembled on Spitsbergen the bulk of the 50-strong contingent arriving aboard the supply ship Nut Skaluren. In the 1926 summer, news of a German attempt to make a transpolar fly, slated for the following year in one of the larger Zeppelins, rumours of a Russian attempt at a polar flight, and news of Wilkins operating out of Barrow caused some vague disquiet among the expedition team, but nothing threw a cat among the pigeons as much as the arrival of the bird expedition. The steamship Chantier sailed into Kings Bay, announced only by a brief radio message while approaching, carrying Lieutenant Commander Bird, his pilot Floyd Bennett, and 50 ground support crew, a Curtis Oriole and a Kitset Fokker F7 trimotor aircraft. Again, the Ford product available at the time lacked the range and reliability of the Fokker design, and considering the Fokker F7 was essentially a scaled-up version of the already proven D8 fighter, and that this particular example of Fokker's products won the Edsel B. Ford Reliability Trophy the previous year with a perfect score, it's not surprising that the whole cloth 
new Project Ford Tri-Motors weren't yet competing on an equal footing. Edsel Ford paid Fokker 40,000 US dollars for the example that Bird took north. The captain of a Norwegian collier refused to vacate the wharf. Bird refused to be stymied and unloaded his ship using makeshift barges comprising four of the Chantier's lifeboats lashed together and decked over with planks, though the airframes were lucky to get ashore in one piece, as the makeshiftness was pretty damn shifty. You'd figure the whole pissing match would have blown itself out in the Ross Sea a decade earlier. Ellsworth figuring Amundsen had good reason to be annoyed with Bird using King's Bay, and Bird receiving an impression that Amundsen engaged in a game of passive-aggressive obstruction through the captain of the Norwegian vessel blocking his access to the shore. Nobile wanted to get flying as soon as possible to null any publicity Bird might subtract from the greater glory of fascist Italy and himself. But Amundsen, wary of becoming embroiled in another unwanted race and any negative repercussions deriving from it should Bird die, Scott-style, in the competition, vetoed his pilot. Any accident befalling the American Fokker would necessarily see the Norge retasked into a search and rescue effort, most likely nixing any scope to make the transpolar flight that year, but Bird would have his chance on a clear field. The media didn't have a clear field. The publication rights contracts signed for each expedition precluding anyone cooperating with the reporters and photographers brought along by the other expedition. So lots of clandestine snapshots, disguises and snooping came into play as the news crews tried to scoop one another. The Curtis Oriole, named Richard III by Bird's men, allegedly to honour the Lieutenant Commander's son, though I do wonder if any of the US crew knew some Cockney rhyming slang, on site as a reconnaissance and search and rescue aircraft, went aloft under the command of Lieutenants Alton Parker and Rob Ortel. While they'd preheated the oil that went into the engine before starting up, they didn't preheat the engine block and cylinders. The oil pump, tasked with pumping the rapidly chilled and sludgifying oil around, stripped its gears. The oil pressure dropped to nothing, forcing an immediate landing. The ruined oil pump went to the Norwegian workshop, where one of Amundsen's crew, Norwegian Navy Lieutenant Pilot and Aircraft Engineer, Bernd Balken, fabricated new parts for the gear train and instructed the pilots on appropriate engine preparation for operations in such low temperatures. The tent around the engine and light a fire on the ground. You know the drill. Just try not to set fire to the airframe. Time to digress and provide some background on Bernd Balkan who features prominently in coming episodes because he played a major role in polar aviation for the better part of 50 years from this era onward. Bernd Balkan's father worked as a country village doctor and his mother, Dini Dietrichsen, came from a family holding a long association with the Norwegian military. Bernd grew up hunting, fishing, trekking, boxing and skiing. His mother's uncle, Major General Olaf Dietrichsen, played an important role in Bernd Balkan's development and introduced the youngster to the Norwegian notables that stayed with the family, including Fritjof Nansen and Roald Amundsen. Amundsen asked teenage Bernd what he wanted to do with his life, to which the young man responded that he wanted to be an explorer in polar realms. Amundsen stated, Then you must keep on skiing and camping and get in real good trim, besides getting good marks in school. 
you must learn about previous expeditions and benefit from their experiences, and be thorough and well prepared in all respects. Above all, you must learn to take care of yourself, to obey and give orders, and to work with others. Sounds like Norwegians generally, to me. But if it was this advice that made Balkan the thorough, conscientious team player he became, Amundsen certainly threw those pearls before a real pearl appreciator. Bernd Balkan spent his summers working in logging camps and studied forestry in order to continue his outdoors lifestyle. Forestry school in Norway involved classes in mathematics, botany, geology, general science, engineering and mapping, so he graduated with a well-rounded education. When the Great War kicked off, Norway did what it could to stay neutral, but once German submarines were torpedoing Norwegian merchant shipping, the likelihood his nation would join the war spurred Balkan to discuss his options with Major General Dietrichsen. On his great uncle's advice, the youngster joined the French Foreign Legion, training up just in time to reach Verdun, where he received conscription orders to return to Norway. The Norwegian military was mobilising. Back home, his training in the French Foreign Legion showed and saw him assigned to an artillery officer training facility in September 1918. But with the armistice on the 11th of November, he didn't go into action against the German forces. Instead, he volunteered to join the White Army, fighting to keep the Russians out of Finland. Officer Cadet Balkan became Private Balkan. His skiing prowess saw him assigned to several reconnaissance missions, where his resourceful successfulness saw him promoted to sergeant. Transferred to the cavalry, Balkan took part in a horseback charge against Russian trenches, armed with a sabre. His horse stumbled, throwing Balkan to the ground, where a Russian soldier bayoneted him in the thigh and the gut. The charge succeeded, and in the mopping up, his comrades found Balkan unconscious in the mud and blood, and carried him to a medical facility. The doctors saved his life, but assured him his day as a competitive athlete were over. But I think doctors are more trying to spur an angry defiance that pushes a patient to strive to recover with that sort of bullshit, rather than just being dicks. And it certainly got the blood up in the young Norwegian, Balkan more determined than ever to compete as a boxer in the 7th Olympiad in Antwerp in 1920. Balkan recuperated from his wounds, completed his artillery officer training, and with no war on anymore, received a commission as a lieutenant in the Norwegian Army Reserve. His cousin, Leif Dietrichsen, already mentioned in episode 65 and just a few minutes ago in episode 66, recommended the mechanically-minded Bernd apply for training in the Naval Air Service. Bernd applied, but when the acceptance came through, he requested a stay so he might compete in the Olympics. The Navy wouldn't delay his induction and Balkan chose flying over boxing, resigning his commission in the Army Reserve and picking up from the military ground floor a fourth time over as a Naval Cadet. He graduated from the Naval Air Training School at Horton, first in his class in 1921, and received his Naval Commission as Flight Lieutenant after a two-year probationary period which he spent flying all over the country in all sorts of weather. Between Norwegian weather, topography and the lovely crinkly bits in fjords, anyone who learns to fly there and doesn't die while building up their hours is, by definition, a good pilot. Bent was an excellent one, 
and his engineering training and inquisitive mind saw him experiment extensively with aircraft skis for operations on snow and ice. Bernd Balkan was aboard a Norwegian naval vessel carrying two seaplanes to Spitsbergen to begin searching for the missing Dornier Wiles of the Amundsen-Ellsworth polar flight when the sealing vessel towing the N-25 came into view. Relieved to see his cousin Leif alive and well, Balkan was also surprised when Amundsen recognised him from their meeting in company with Major General Dietrichsen many years earlier. I remember you. You told me you wanted to be a great discoverer and go on an expedition with me. I've met two of my heroes. One talked to me about harness racing, which I do not know or care about, and the other asked me for street directions, which I gave. So, yeah, I know how that feels. Anywho, what I hope you take away from all that Balkan exposition is that this was no ordinary black duck. Richard Bird's Fokker, the Josephine Ford, named after Edsel Ford's daughter as much to get the sponsor's name on the airframe, albeit dwarfed by the large Fokker painted on every available surface, as it was to honour the young heiress, cracked its skis during its test flight takeoff run. The American effort might have come to a grinding halt had Bert Balkan not helped the Americans construct more robust model skis, reinforced with strips of wood made from the oars of one of the Chantier's lifeboats, to the annoyance of Captain Michael Brennan, and taught his US counterparts how to use a blowtorch to work pine resin into the wood to better suit the ice surface conditions than the shoe polish Lieutenant Ortel originally used. Different accounts account Balkan's actions as having Amundsen's sanction and Amundsen's opprobrium. Certainly, some of his countrymen felt Balkan betrayed Norwegian national interests, but he felt an affinity for the Americans that drew him easily to their company, enjoying their can-do spirit and cheerful hard yards for a project most of them wouldn't much benefit from. Whatever Amundsen thought of Balkan's efforts on the behalf of the Bird team, Balkan saved Bird an embarrassing return home due to insufficient understanding of how to operate aircraft at high latitudes. The Josephine Ford made a successful two-hour test flight, but only got airborne after 300 gallons of fuel were removed and 100 pounds of souvenirs were turfed as the improved skis, while now strong enough to take the weight, didn't seem to be sliding across the ice as readily as might be desired. On the 7th of May, a telegram arrived from Point Barrow. Hubert Wilkins requesting meteorological information, putting the spurs to bird, and not for the last time in what would turn out to be their long acquaintance. On the 8th, Bird and Bennett tried to take off in the Josephine Ford, but the aircraft couldn't get off the ground under its full fuel load in the Kings Bay midday. With the air temperature barely on freezing, the ice surface turned slushy and again prevented the skis effectively reducing the friction between the aircraft and the runway. Bernd Balkan came to their aid once more, suggesting they wait until midnight when the ice would be at its hardest and therefore least sticky for the Josephine Ford's skis. Bird heeded Balkan and Bennett got the Josephine Ford airborne that night at midnight. Fifteen and a half hours later, a time Balkan noted carefully in his pocketbook, and curiously short of the estimated time required to fly the trimotor to the pole and back. And with Bird's navigation equipment unserviceable, matters no one but Balkan paid much attention to at the time, the plane returned. Amundsen congratulated the Americans heartily, and the Norwegian contingent gave out nine cheers to celebrate a goal kicked 
and a safe return. Bird hung about just long enough to be sure the Norge didn't require the Josephine Ford's assistance before ordering the Fokker dismantled. Word came through from Alaska via Norway. Norge arrived, Teller, Alaska, elapsed time, 71 hours, completing first crossing over Pole, Europe to America. Bird commenced loading his team and equipment back aboard the Chantier and headed south. So let's jump back in time a bit and find out about that 71-hour flight of the Norge. Nobile had the airship ready to go on the 11th of May and wanted to be away at 1 in the morning when the air was at its coldest and densest and the lift provided by the hydrogen correspondingly at its greatest. The Norwegian contingent didn't turn up until after breakfast and the frustrated Italian had to vent gas as the air temperature rose through the morning. Bernd Balkan and two other crew members were left in Kings Bay due to the lift limitations imposed by the late departure. The ground crew led the ponderous machine out of its hangar. The engines fired up and the mooring lines were let go. The Norge set off north. It was not a pleasant flight. With hydrogen gas being flammable, the Italian engineer didn't allow any form of cabin heating and those crew tasked to maintain the engines or scout for problems along the gantries between the gas chambers didn't find much relief from the cold on taking their off-watch time in the accommodations. Nobile, all eagerness and earnestness for the cameras, spent much of the flight in his bunk, leaving the flying to Risa Larison and the navigation to Lincoln Ellsworth. The common language, English, spoken badly by many and not at all by some, didn't serve well during emergencies. Unexpected trim changes necessitated frantic gesticulations where words couldn't serve to get as many people as possible to the correct position along the airframe to rectify whatever malfunction in the valves or ballast system caused the excitement. A factor rarely considered any time anyone gets excited about the advantages of airships is that they are slow and therefore give a flight more time in which things can go wrong. Airships can stay aloft if the engines stop, in a way that might make anyone in a fixed-wing aircraft envious, but they aren't simple, and three times as long in the air in a machine with half the moving parts still puts the odds in favour of the faster machine not breaking down in some way while aloft. That's an oversimplification, because I haven't factored in stresses acting on the faster moving machine, but it still plays a part in the airship never becoming much more than an aviation novelty in spite of several red-hot goes at making them the shape of things to come. They're not the shape of things to come, they're penis-shaped, which, well, anyway. Bird and Bennett flew the Josephine Ford near the Norge for a while, but at 50 knots flat out, the airship was too slow for even the slow by comparison to anything that came after at Fokker to keep pace satisfactorily, and the Americans ended up flying in lazy circles around the flying circus. Amundsen's words. Cold sandwiches, hard-boiled eggs frozen solid and in need of thawing in pockets before consumption, and coffee and tea slowly going cold in vacuum flasks were the only fare. Ice built up on the airship envelope any time they had to enter fog, weighing the machine down until it broke away, sometimes altering the trim. 
Ice chunks sometimes fell into the blades of the propellers, which could send the shattered shards back into the hull at sufficient speed to put the gas bladders at risk of perforation. Nabile slowed the outer engines to lessen the risk posed by the propeller-driven ice showers, but this slowed their progress and lengthened the trip, factoring up the problems. At 01.30 on the 12th of May, Nabile ordered the engines stopped as the airship approached the North Geographic Pole. Amundsen and Visting, the first humans to visit both geographic poles, celebrated with a handshake, and Amundsen got out the A4-sized Norwegian flag on a stick. Ellsworth produced his similarly proportioned US flag on a stick. Nabile retrieved a casket in which a huge Italian flag on a stick, carried on Benito Mussolini's explicit orders and entirely against the spirit of the weight restrictions Nabile enforced on the non-Italians aboard the Norge, and a brace of Italian city flags on a sticks. Amundsen laughed at the Italian prima donna, who didn't deign to respond to the derision as he got on with the serious business of representing fascism in a manner befitting its place in world history, in a place no one would ever go to marvel at the flags he planted. I like to imagine Amundsen laughed all the harder when one of the large flags caught an air current and blew into one of the engines and tangled in the propeller. Fucking fascist die. If ever anyone loves waving a flag and makes a point they wave a larger flag than anyone else, harder than anyone else, keep them clear of the cutlery and try to keep a table between you and them. After an hour circling above the pole, the engines fired back up and the journey continued. While Nobile lost interest in even the basic running of his aircraft after the big ticket goal of the pole was kicked, Amundsen and Ellsworth fought off the bone tiredness caused by a long day in the cramped, cold, and deafeningly noisy airship to watch for signs of Peary's northern land, every moment heading south taking them further over unseen territory. Ice formation damaged the trailing aerial wire, cutting off radio contact with the outside world, putting rescue vessels on standby and curtailing the weather updates the aviators used to plot the safest, fastest route. After hours in ice-forming fogs, Risa Larsen spotted land, and those still awake and alert enough to make some attempt at navigation, decided they'd sighted the Alaskan north coast. Amundsen thought he identified Point Barrow. Wilkins and Eilson counted among those who watched the Norge fly overhead there, but further on, the caribou farm at Wainwright proved the first confirmed landmark since they departed Kings Bay. A storm blew the airship out over the Bering Strait, with no more ballast to lose, the crew set to knocking ice from the exterior to try to balance the lift against the weight, and the Norge performed a series of undignified ascents and dives as adverse winds and airship trim settings conspired to spoil everyone's day. Nabile, at this point, demonstrated he was actually good at the one thing people expected him to be good at, calculating how much gas to vent against anticipated pressure and temperature changes in the final stage of the voyage so as to maintain height when the storm passed and the Norge once again approached the mountainous coast. More storms hit as the airship followed the coast, hoping to reach Nome, but low on fuel, lacking ballast, and likely to encounter further icing conditions if they remained aloft, Nobile prepared for a landing at the next settlement they encountered, which turned out to be Teller. Anchors out, valves pulled, the Norge sank to the ground and then into itself, 
as the hydrogen that held the airship's shape escaped to the atmosphere. While the expedition achieved its first transpolar flight goal, no new land came to light and hydrogen-filled airships proved themselves eminently unsuited to high-latitudes flight. With the telegraph service in Teller unserviceable, Amundsen headed to Nome via steam launch. He received a fairly cool reception there, the local chamber of commerce having put a lot of effort and some expense into preparations for the Norge's arrival, all to no avail. Nobile, who stayed on in Teller to supervise the dismantling of the airship, took advantage of the telegraph service as soon as the transmitter was repaired and, against the written agreements protecting Amundsen and Ellsworth's newspaper exclusive commitments, sent out a message scooping them. Similar to damage done by an unscrupulous telegraph operator at the end of the Gyoa voyage, Nabile's message dented the news value of the expedition to the New York Times, with which Amundsen and Ellsworth had worked out a $55,000 deal. When Nobile arrived in Nome, the Italian and Norwegian contingents didn't interact. While in Seattle, Nobile received a promotion to general and orders to visit 13 US cities to promote fascist Italy's technology and exploratory prowess. Again, this flouted contracts with Amundsen and Ellsworth, who considered Nobile an employee. But, fascists gonna fascist and Nobile got on with the job of massaging Mussolini's prostate by proxy and giving his own ego a fair polish while he was at it. While on tour, Nobile began claiming that the expedition was entirely his idea and took place entirely on his initiative. He thanked Ellsworth for assisting financially, but stated clearly, just in case anyone was uncertain exactly how far he was willing to throw everyone under his personal bus, I was the commander of the Norge, and everybody on it, including Amundsen, was under my orders. Going on to claim that the Norwegians did little but sleep during the flight. Gaslighting. Fucking hate it. Ellsworth came out on the record to correct Nobile's assertions, telling the press that Risa Larsen did far more of the flying than Nobile, and that Nobile didn't take part in any aspect of the navigation. Nabile retorted that Ellsworth constituted a passenger. The lessons of the Belgica, lessons which served Amundsen well in subsequent maritime travels, seem forgotten in the sorry story of the Norge and its fallout. Don't try something harebrained unless you have the chain of command hammered out to the nth degree. The fascists had their chain of command well sorted, and when Mussolini said jump, Nabile jumped. Amundsen might as well have had Il Douche on the trip with him. Back to Wilkins. With everything in place, Wilkins waited for the weather to clear to make his flight. Seeing the Norge pass overhead gave him a thrill, his ideas about aviation serving Arctic needs being realised, even though he wasn't involved. The weather never did clear and he pulled the pin at the beginning of June. Leaving the fuel stored at Barrow, he flew the Detroiter back to Fairbanks and mothballed it for the winter in the town's one and only hangar. In spite of proposing a shoestring budget follow-up season in 1927 using a Detroit-built Stinson biplane, the Detroit Aviation Society weren't interested in stumping up the funds, turning over to Wilkins the supplies and equipment already in place, so long as Wilkins put 20% of any future exploration work towards settling the $30,000 US dollar debt he owed them.
the Detroit News were keen to continue their association with the Wilkins brand and paid their man to lecture and show films at 90 local schools, Wilkins sometimes knocking these appointments out at a rate of four schools a day, which I can attest as someone with one foot in the school incursions business as a feat of endurance that impresses me almost as much as his 600-mile foot slog out of the Arctic. Back to bird spotting. The pole goal kicked. All birds' other proposed exploratory flights that helped garner financial and practical support came to naught. Bert Balkan became very close with Floyd Bennett, and the pair made many flights together in the Fokker F-7, which Balkan cited as the best aircraft he'd ever handled. It was Bennett who suggested the Norwegian pilot and engineer, who'd pretty much single-handedly saved Bird's expedition Bacon through his knowledge of, and willingness to share his knowledge of, flying from snow surfaces, might prove similarly useful in high-latitudes projects that Bird was already discussing. Bird asked Belkin if he would be interested in joining a Greenland expedition he was contemplating the next northern summer. With characteristic enthusiasm, Belkin responded, yeah, you bet. A phrase those who worked with him heard often enough that it became a shorthand reference to his pragmatic, optimistic approach to all tasks. Balkan sought and received the nod from his commanding officers in both Spitsbergen and Norway, and took a year's leave from his naval air service duties. Captain Brennan, already put upon in the misuse of his lifeboats and their oars, and well sick of aviators, resented the imposition of extra self-loading ballast until Balkan's credentials and work ethic were made known to him. Balkan stood watch as the ship sailed from Spitsbergen. Uncomfortable at the idea that his future might no longer lie with Norway, but excited about the optimism and opportunities he saw on offer in America. The Chantier deposited the expedition crew in England for six days, during which Bird and Bennett received a lot of adulation but Bird's reticence to address the Royal Geographic Society or show its board any of his flight documentation caused some raised eyebrows. An Italian newspaper Bennett read at the Royal Aero Club reported that while the voyage of the Norge could not be criticised on any front, the American claim to have reached the North Pole first wasn't being taken at face value by Italian aviation experts and pundits. Balkan recorded Bennett as crumpling the newspaper up after reading it and throwing it in whatever the polite British euphemism for a trash can was. Probably a scally bobbler. Norwegian and Danish aviators also called for scepticism until the flight data and navigation log was assessed by a competent body. Back aboard the Chantier, Bird asked Captain Brennan to lay off the New Jersey coast near Sandy Hook for two days to ensure his triumphant return to the United States coincided with the ticker tape parade that the public relations representative, Harry A. Bruno, and New York's Playboy Mayor, Jimmy Walker, arranged for the weekend. The largest of its kind since the war. And you can trust me on this. Bird checked details of this kind. Captain Brennan brought the Chantier alongside its berth at midday and the expedition members left Balkan on the ship as they made their way to City Hall through the clouds of ticker tape, where Mayor Walker presented them with medals minted for the occasion. These were the first of many gongs, as President Coolidge presented Bird and Bennett with the National Geographic Society's Hubbard Medal, and the Navy awarded them the Distinguished Service Medal and the Distinguished Flying Cross. Congress voted to promote Bird from Lieutenant Commander to Commander, 
causing disgruntlement among those officers of Byrd's cohort getting by on their naval merits, and Bennett to warrant machinist. Another Congressional Act voted the Medal of Honour on both Byrd and Bennett. Balkan recalled that on learning he and Byrd were to receive the Hubbard Medal, Bennett stated, I don't want to go down to Washington and get another medal for that North Pole thing. While Balkan didn't pursue the matter, I'm using it here as foreshadowing. Dun dun dun! And we're going to leave it there for episode 66. While it's likely too late for anyone listening to this to make plans to head to Hobart for the Australian Antarctic Festival, I'm looking forward to hanging out with members of the Inari Club and recording as much oral history as I can. And I'm staying on in Hobart for a week so that I can present at Beaker Street. Details on the Facebook page and the blog. Greetings this episode to Karina, whom I've yet to meet, but who's very supportive. Take care and appreciate your coffee.